0: Speaking of 1991. (laughs) So one of the things that I was thinking a lot about when I was watching it the first time was there are some really sort of odd kind of thematic parallels to a couple of other pieces of art, which I really like, which all kind of like popped up around around the same time. So this book came out in 1991 and Angels in America first premiered in new york um the first the first part of it did um in 1990 and then in i think 1992 was the the premiere of a play called marisol not as well known but um really good by uh an la like a latino playwright from la named jose rivera and i they're both like plays that i absolutely love and it's just it's interesting to me that it's like What is it about the end of the 80s that made all of these writers sort of fixate kind of concurrently on the relationship between heaven and hell and humanity as this sort of like – Metaphor for where the world was at. So like, Angels in America, it's a, for people who haven't read it or seen it, it's, um, it's a play, it's like a five hour play. So it was in two parts. Um, and it's sort of primarily the kind of real world story of it is the relationship between two, uh, two gay men who sort of, they sort of split up early in the story. One of them, prior Walter, um, discovers that he has AIDS and the other one ends up having an affair with like a closeted Mormon guy. And then the closeted Mormon guy's family kind of comes into the story and, the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg is in it and Roy Cohen is in it and it it's super wacky and weird. But the first half of the play ends with Prior Walter's guardian angel basically sort of crashing down through his ceiling. And, uh, and the second half of the play involves Prior and the angel kind of in this back and forth about like humanity is sort of In trouble. God is, God is upset with human beings because he sort of invented them because he was bored, because angels were kind of static and he wanted something, he wanted, um, you know, beings to, to engage with and to watch, um, who had the capacity to like learn and grow and change and transform. And then it kind of snowballed and humanity sort of got away from him. And so the angel has sort of like, come to earth with the sort of message that like like you guys need to stop moving. Like this is like you're going too fast and God can't keep up and and that God has kind of abdicated responsibility over the human race after like I think like the great earthquake in San Francisco in 1920 was sort of this like like God trying to like stop the wheels turning on humanity sort of essentially. And um and so Pryor has to like there's a scene where he like goes up to heaven and he's kind of like you know testifying in front of this panel of all these angels and and kind of talking about like yeah like humanity is like super fucked up and we have made a lot of mistakes and we are not perfect and we are not all good but like we deserve like we deserve to be given permission to kind of continue to exist and live and then he kind of evolves into the sort of like prophet character and so so there's a lot in that just sort of in terms of the like humanity becoming this thing that that grows and evolves past how God conceived it as a, as a sort of a, a species that it, he could control, which I think is really interesting sort of allegorically. And then Marisol, which is much darker and weirder and crazier, is very sort of like, um, kind of like urban magical realism, I guess. But it's, it's set in the Bronx, um, in like late 80s, early 90s, and it follows this, uh, Latina woman named Marisol Perez, And, uh, and she, like, the first scene in the play, she's like, She's, like, attacked on a subway platform and her guardian angel steps in to save her. And then later in the play, her guardian angel comes back and basically is, like, yeah, so there's a war going on in heaven and I can't be your guardian angel anymore because, like, I got drafted. So I have to go fight in this, (laughs) like, angel uprising against God. So, like, you're on your own. Humanity's kind of fucked now because, like, all the angels that protected you and kept you guys all safe are, like doing battle with each other oh wow (laughs) so it's basically like the streets of the bronx kind of become this like battlefield and these like deeply weird metaphorical characters like like a man who has no skin or like a woman who disappears and no one can see her because she has no credit rating which means she like doesn't exist as a person like all these sort of like very strange kind of like people as metaphor, you know, like, and they're like, like displaced and like kind of like societal outcasts kind of come together under Marisol's leadership as a kind of like citizen army. Um, but the, the, the theology stuff is really interesting because like, uh, like, you know, Maricel's Latino, her angel, her guardian angel is a black woman a lot of the other angels that you see are people of color and, and God is like an old white guy. And so the rebellion kind of comes about because essentially like God is, is kind of going senile, like losing his mind, like refusing to change, refusing to listen. No one can get through to him. And so there's sort of this uprising of. Of the other angels, who sort of feel like you know they have to kind of like topple the power structure, um, and it ends with like I can't remember if it's Marisol or if it's another character, but like it's really like it ends with like they they sort of kill God and like elect a new God. So it was very weird. Um, I love it. I saw it when I was in high school. Um, I was like a freshman in high school and. And Portland State did it, like the college drama department did it. And I was like 13 or 14, like little like Catholic school Claire and I was watching going like, A, what the fuck am I watching? And B, like, <laughs> like, 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 I'm like, I've never forgotten this play. But uh, so it's very good. So if you ever get a chance to read it or see it, they're both wonderful. But what I thought was interesting, I, I sort of like, I, out of curiosity, like I looked them both up after I finished Good Omens the first time and, and realized that like, like essentially like all of these projects were sort of being written kind of around the same time. So it's not so much that like Marisol was overtly influenced by Angels in America or Angels in America was influenced by Good Omens or whatever. It's more that like, I'm more curious about like what was in the air in that. Time in the world where, you know, these sort of big metaphysical, you know, heaven, hell, humanity kind of at odds with each other stories felt like something that the world was reflecting i think it's you know, kind of like the end of the reagan era mm-hmm. and you know and things like like global geopolitics definitely um aids definitely i think mm-hmm. marisol in particular was really shaped by like the la riots so like there was there was a lot of sort of like structures crumbling the old world kind of falling away what is this new world that we're in you know like, the 80s were this sort of like Perceived by many to be this kind of like, you know, halcyon days of like peacetime and whatever. And now like the 90s are coming and things are all gritty and there's drugs and disease and whatever. Um, Like the way that sort of middle class white people kind of perceive the decline of civilization. So I was thinking sort of a lot about like pop culture depictions of angels and their relationships with humanity as being something that like, You know, I mean, obviously, like we can talk about like Paradise Lost, like it's something we've sort of we've kind of always been interested in those questions. But there but there seemed to be sort of an unusual kind of bump in like, in the 80s and 90s, like, unpacking that in a really sort of like, gritty and contemporary way where you sort of feel like like yeah i guess like crowley would fit pretty nicely into like the universes of like both of both of those stories (laughs) so yeah so that was just something that i was sort of like thinking about just it was interesting to me like the cultural context of the world you know i think is interesting and i and it's even like and sort of touched on, I think, a little bit in, I think, some of the interviews with, with cast members, um, from, from Good Omens who had, who had read the books. Like, it's interesting, like, the, in the 90s, like, when the book came out, one of the sort of things that makes it entertaining and fun, kind of, and ironic is this idea that, like, heaven and hell have sort of decided that it's time to bring about the end of the world when, like, nothing, like, Nothing in particular seems to be really falling apart that actively. Like, it's sort of like, yeah. everything's kind of fine and beige, you know. And and that is a piece of it that lands very differently <laughs> in 2019 yeah, as, yeah. like, <laughs> you know, the planet is on fire and the world is falling apart and, you know... Everyone is feels like we're on the brink of war constantly, and like, will we even have an Earth in fifty years? And so, the irony of it lands very differently. And like, we're now you're yeah. sort of like, yeah, I could see the things that are happening around us as being potential <laughs> signs of an apocalypse. Like, I'm willing to suspend uh, my dele- disbelief and believe that. Yeah, like that all kind of checks out. I could
1: totally believe that. You know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding. You know, uh-huh. like. People, you know, building up a war with Iran in addition to all of the wars around the world mm-hmm. and like various new diseases popping up and the yeah. return of measles. And- yep. Yep. <laughs> and climate change, you know, altering, mm-hmm. um, like one, one sort of, um, likely outcome of climate change is that it changes the growing seasons and the growing places, which is going to affect our ability to produce food. Which means that famine will be coming. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I can definitely see. Yeah, uh, you know, looking around and being like, um, sure feels like some, check ho- some horsemen are riding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very different from. Like, I do kind of wonder. The other thing that was sort of major thing that was going on geopolitically in the late 80s and early 90s, um, was the end of the Cold War, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of, like, shift from a time, you know, if in the Cold War, if there was – the Cold War was a time when, like, to sort of varying degrees, there was a kind of pervasive feeling that, like, yeah, the world could end at any moment, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. nuclear Armageddon is just, like, one slip of the finger or one sort of, like, person on either the American or the Russian side, you know, getting too jumpy at the wrong time and hitting the button, um, you know, like that, that was ending. And then also the other thing, like from the perspective of Americans, at least, you know, and I, and like, I think it's different in Britain, obviously, um, but maybe still a little bit kind of there is, is the sense of like the, the Cold War also gave everyone or get, you know, gave a lot of people a very sort of it created a very neat and tidy black and white sort of schema to the world. You know, mm-hmm. like there was an us and a them. And yeah. the us is, you know, like democracy and capitalism and the them is communism and, you know, like Soviet autocracy
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: or or vice versa. But the idea that the world was split into these two sort of like hegemonic, Factions that each were like aligned with some, some sort of ideological dogma. And everybody else on the planet, you know, had to like either, you know, sort of like align yourself with one of them or the other. And whether, regardless of which side you landed on, kind of get rough, run roughshod over, you know, Mm -hmm, like you're mm -hmm. gonna, you're gonna get crushed. You're gonna, you know, the little guy is gonna get kind of like hurt in these sort of like great superpowers quest for dominance, for winning, you know? So there's a kind of way where you can look at the way that like Good Omens thinks about the he- the war of heaven versus hell as, as having some potential similarities to kind of like Cold War America versus Russia. Yeah.
0: Well, and the fact that it's who- like like nuclear reactors are involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in that context, but I think, I think you're totally right. And I think you know, th- that's one of the reasons why – I have a hard time granting the premise that, you know, that this is a, a book that is the anti-religion or whatever, because it's so very clearly like what it's trying to show, I think, in that kind of, you know, the sort of the war between heaven and hell with humans caught in the middle, has much less to do with critiquing religion, you know, writ large as a concept or or human faith, and much more about our sort of Endless propensity to find us versus themness comfortable, like our mm-hmm. our desire to to feel safer, to feel more you know at ease when we can draw these very strict lines where you know like like that's like you know sort of the the function of like characters like Gabriel, you know, like who are sort of like fundamentally like you know like sort of a cowardly middle mid-level bureaucrat who doesn't want to know or think or you know or explore anything sort of outside of the walls of that like blank white room that he lives in because it is so much easier to just sort of like we good them bad that's all you know and (laughs) and that i think that sort of inherent trait in humanity and like i think the cold war is is obviously like a you know a very i think cogent example of it but it's also like it's a it's sort of a piece of our human dna that comes out over and over again in so many different you know situations and circumstances and i think that it's that trait in us that i think heaven and hell is a metaphor for unpacking more than it is like you know This book hates God. You know, like, it's not like that's like, that's such a reductive, like an obnoxiously reductive reading of it because I feel like that, that capacity for humans to sort of uh, shrink down anything that we struggle to understand or any person who's different from us or any culture that's different from us into a sort of like, you know, like, you're either with the US or you're with Russia, you know, you're either with heaven mm-hmm. or you're with hell, you know, you're either Republican or you're a Democrat, you know, and here are all of the things that go along with that. And here are and and all you have to do is tell me what label you are wearing. And I know what label I am wearing. And then I sort of believe that I know everything about you without actually needing to learn anything about you. And so I think what makes, you know, Crowley and Aziraphale and and the human characters, all of whom sort of live in the middle more interesting and i think you know and so much braver too is Mm -hmm. that like that they're willing to that they're willing to look at somebody who they've been told their whole life is like the other guy the bad guy the other side and find similarities is like the, arguably, like the trait that we are the most missing, you know, like in in our humanity, is being able to sort of tap into that more, you know, and that's I think very much in line with the way many people of faith practice their faith.
1: Yeah, the, and the reason I thought of it, you know, the reason that I think that that Cold War kind of jumped into my head was because um, we just finished watching me and my husband the last uh, this last week uh, watched the the American Experience documentary on the moon landing. Um, on oh. PBS. Um, which is, I mean, if you, if you get a chance to watch it either, I think it's like streaming on the PBS site or whatever. It's really, really, actually, you know, I think it's on Amazon. I think it's on, I think it's on Prime. Um, so it it is amazing. It's so good. It's a, it's three parts and each part is two hours and it goes in like, it's, it goes like all the way back to the beginning of the space program. Um, and it's really amazing and in depth. Um, but one of the things that was really fascinating that they brought up that they talked a lot about that I had not thought about before, because it's like, you know, it's, it's not at all the way that this, that you're taught about this in school is that, you know, that the, the fact that we went to the moon, uh, was so deeply and thoroughly a product of the Cold War. That it was the space mm-hmm. race was a part of the arms race. It was a part of the sort of yeah. like, like the, the you know, the, the amount of money that the American government put into this program and the things that we chose to do and when we chose to do them, um, you know, so much of it was determined by the by the fact that Russia was doing it you know and then in america the fact that that russia you know just sputnik the fact that russia beat us to space they put a, they put a satellite in orbit before we did they put a living animal in orbit before we did they put they put the first human beings in orbit you know before we did uh the first the first person to orbit the earth was a russian you know and these things were like the thing the thing that kind of like pushed the american space race was the Russians are doing this for us and part of it was paranoia about you know sort of like weapons programs and and things like and capabilities and things like that but a lot of it was just down to we can't let russia beat us in anything like they can't have a first for humanity you know we have to have this and and part of the part of the reason why we landed on the moon at all like part of the reason why the moon became a thing like people were talking about I guess there were plans about going to Mars before there were plans about going to the moon. But um but it was part of this, you know, part of it was was a piece of this race. Like the moon is a place we can get to. And then um you know, on the American side, you know, like the, there were some plans to go to the moon, but eventually like they they sort of like heard like the the sort of they became aware that the Russians were also planning to go to the moon, you know, so it became this thing where the Americans were going to go to the moon. So then the Russians are like, we got to go to the moon. So then the Russians are like, we got to get there before and the Americans are like, oh, shit, like, literally, the Americans moved up their plans, like, they moved it up by several months, because the Russians were going to land, they had like a an unmanned spacecraft that was going to land on the moon. And they were like, we got to beat them. And I think I think America beat the Russian spacecraft to the moon by like 12 hours, which is another thing you never hear. So it's like all this stuff (laughs) where like the, you know, like this entire massive multi-billion dollar program exists the way that it existed because of the Cold War and because you have these two hegemonic superpowers battling over who is going to win like just win like there's no win like this you know just winning for the sake of you don't winning. get Eating the moon the for the sake like- of yeah you don't get the moon and once they got there they're like oh right there's kind of fuck all here, you know. Right. We went a couple times. We don't go back for a reason, you know. Like we went literally because it was there and it was easier to get to than Mars, um, <laughs> you know. So like, so so we won just for the sake of winning. Um, and and like one thing that I really like that that this documentary does incredibly well is that they, you know, in in the course of showing that they they sort of spend a little bit of time. Showing like you know in in the sort of buildup, I think right before the um, the launch of Apollo eleven, so like which was the the Apollo eleven was the mission that landed on the moon, you know. So there's like thousands and thousands of people coming to uh, the launch site and camping out, um, but there was a group of um, civil rights activists um, who came to the launch site. And you know, and and we're sort of staging like giving speeches and they had signs basically like like raising the question, just like raising the question, like saying, like, this is a great achievement for humankind, yes. Um, but there are still people on earth right now in this country who are suffering and starving and don't have homes. And you're spending billions and billions of dollars. To put it, three guys on the moon, so you know, and and it it didn't wind up as being a confrontation. Like the head of NASA came out and talked to them, and he invited some of them to watch, and there was like a conversation and whatever. But like the you know this this documentary, one thing it does well is sort of pause and actually like and like talk about those issues. You know, like say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. point out, like we spend a huge amount of money on doing this thing, and yeah, it's an amazing thing, but like. Doing that thing, which was motivated primarily by winning, you know, against the mm-hmm. Russians, pulled a tremendous amount of resources away from human beings living on Earth in a way that, not to say that that money would have guaranteed gone to, like, you know, poverty programs or whatever, but still, you know, like, in other words, like, the attention was pulled towards winning this fight with this sort of, like, you know, this this sort of in Kuwait, ideological—well, not in Kuwait—it's a country, but like this kind of like ideological sort of power struggle, and that came at the expense of the the lives and the well-being of actual human beings. And so, I feel like there's, you know, that like good omens is like that's that's kind of also what they're interested in. You know, there's a kind of like yeah this great power struggle between these two great powers, and mm-hmm. and they each want to win, and they're huge and they're cr- tremendously powerful, and everything they do and every choice they make has repercussions for all these living human beings. And from one, you know, like you could you can look at the living human beings as like little sort of chess pieces or or peons or numbers or collateral damage, or you can look at them as actual human beings, you know, with experiences and lives who are either being helped or hurt by what you choose to do with that power.
0: I okay, first of all, I really want to watch that. It's so good, Claire.
1: Like so good. You you would die. Like and there's so much politics in there. There's so oh, much Nixon. Yeah. Like
0: yes, yeah. uh, my kryptonite. <laughs> um, Aaron and Aaron's husband and I are all sort of mid-century history geeks together. So when they come visit, Jordan and I usually just watch a lot of Watergate documentaries. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and for those of you who are not uh, regular uh, Metastation listeners, if you are new to the podcast, coming to it because you are a um a Good Omens fan Claire is a novelist and she wrote a novel called The Rewind Files which is about time travel and also about Watergate.
0: Thank so, you. Thank
1: you for plugging me. You're welcome. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so good. It's so fucking good. So Thank you. Yes. I am
0: working on two sequels to it now. <laughs> not, not right now because right now I am podcasting <laughs> because yes, I like yes. distractions. But, you know, but,
1: in general. Yes.
0: In general. <laughs>